0: Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. The event I'll be talking about today occurred in 1927. But what else happened that year? Well, on the 1st of January, the British Broadcasting Company becomes the British Broadcasting Corporation when it is granted a royal charter. On the 14th of February, Alfred Hitchcock's silent film thriller, The Lodger, A Story of the London Fog, is released. On the 6th of March, 1,000 people a week die from an influenza epidemic. On the 12th of May, British police rigged the London office of the Soviet trading company, Arkos. Then, on the 24th of May, Britain severs diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union because of revelations of espionage and underground agitation. Then, on the 9th of June, the Soviet Union executes 20 British nationals alleged espionage but our unfortunate event happened on the 28th of july in 1927 and before the opening of the inquiry the coroner drove to the scene of the accident a field near winterbourne at a crossroads on old gloucester road and there inspected the smashed aircraft when he got there he found mechanics under the supervision of the inspector were dismantling the wrecked airplane which had been left undisturbed and guarded by police officers since the time of the accident. The work of the mechanics and the examination by Major Cooper, the inspector of accidents, was temporarily suspended whilst the inquest was proceeded and the plane covered with a tarpaulin to wait for the inspector to return. The inquest was held in a hut belonging to the aeroplane company and Major Cooper occupied a seat by the side of the coroner There were also representatives from Imperial Airways Limited, the Bristol Airways Company, and the Bristol Company, as well as Mr Owen Bernard, the father of the deceased pilot. Word of the Week And this week, let me present you with the word "wamble," which is the grumbling noise your stomach sometimes makes. Captain Bernard had been employed by the Imperial Airway since it started, although he had been temporarily released for flying the King's Cup race in the Bristol Type 99A badminton. A machine specially designed for the previous year's race and modified so it could now achieve speeds of around 170 miles an hour. It had a Jupiter Series 6 engine and dual ignition. The company, from the chairman down to the smallest employee, felt the loss of not only one of the world's most talented airmen, but also of a real friend.
1: His death leaves a gap in the ranks of the company and of civil aviation as well as the world, that cannot be filled. He leaves us with a memory and an example few of us can strive to follow, and few of us can hope to emulate.
0: Captain Cyril Frank Owens, a test pilot for the Bristol Aeroplane Company, officially identified the body of Franklin Leslie Bernard. And Mr Owen Bernard father of the deceased, said Captain Bernard was thirty years old. Archie Newman, a farmer of Court Farm Winterbourne, said that about seven fifteen on Thursday the twenty eighth of july, nineteen twenty seven, he was in his farmyard and he saw an aeroplane flying from Winterbourne in the direction of Filton. The plane circled to the left in a direction between Filton and Winterbourne. The engine appeared to be missing badly, and Archie could see he was going to make a forced landing in the field in which the plane was eventually found. The plane appeared to be under perfect control until it reached the ground. He noticed, however, that it did not straighten out to land properly. In the end, it didn't land on its wheels. He raced to the spot where he found others trying to extricate the pilot, so he tried to help as well. Captain Bernard appeared to be dead so they laid him on the grass and called for a doctor. Archie Newman said the angle was so steep that the wheels didn't even touch the ground. William Bryant, a fitter who lived on the high street in Winterbourne and was employed at the aerodrome, said he was in his garden when his attention was drawn to an aeroplane flying low. He heard the engine misfire several times, and it appeared to be in trouble, and about to make a forced landing. He did not actually see it land, but immediately cycled to the spot. Others were there trying to lift the pilot from the cockpit, but he was strapped in, and William had to cut the straps. He did not know how much the deceased had been moved before he arrived. At this point, Dr. Crossman said he would like to know the position of the deceased's head, but William was unable to say. And, at the coroner's request, a constable went in search of Bernard Maggs, who was stated in the Daily Press to be the first person on the scene. Mr Bernard Maggs, son of Mr Maggs, whose farmhouse, Mulgrove Farm, Hanbrook, was near the scene of the crash, told a reporter from the Western Daily Press what happened.
1: I was at the crossroads by the direction post on my bicycle. I saw the plane banking, and it turned about 500 feet up. A little bit of white exhaust came from the engine, and I immediately knew that something was amiss, and stopped the bicycle and watched the plane. When about 300 feet up, the propeller stopped, and the plane curved round, descending towards the chimney stacks at the Imperial Brickworks. I thought it turned to avoid the stack, and gradually got down to about 100 feet, and when at about 80 feet from the ground, the nose dived. I rushed across the field and found Captain Bernard lying on the fuselage. I took his goggles and helmet off, and then saw he was dead. James Adams of Winterbourne and Harold Rowley of Downend came and helped, and we unstrapped the body and lifted out of the machine onto the grass. I think the impact with the ground killed him instantly. His legs appeared to be broken, as well as one arm, and there were bad face injuries. Bernard Maggs said that he thought the
0: nosedive was at an angle of about 45 degrees, and added that Stanley Organ was the one who cycled off to find Dr. Frank Crossman, who came quickly, but could do nothing. Bernard went on to say that the plane crashed 90 yards away from him when he fought his way through the dust and vapour to get to the pilot. The first thing he could see was a left arm over the cockpit, which had been smashed by the pilot's head that was lying on the arm. His right arm was hanging loosely at his side, his left leg was protruding from the cockpit, and the ankle was broken. Bernard removed the goggles, which were smashed, and took off the helmet. He unstrapped one strap and tried to lift the captain out, even though he knew the poor man was dead. That's when the others arrived to help. PC Garner, stationed at Winterbourne, had the body taken to Court Farm in Winterbourne. Captain Bernard's watch had stopped at 7.37pm. It had been presented to Sir James Inston for winning the King's Cup in 1924. Dr Crossman of Hambrook examined the body and stated that the cause of death was a fracture and dislocation of the vertebrae of the neck caused by the impact against the front of the cockpit. Luckily, death was instantaneous. Marshall February, an inspector employed at the Bristol Aeroplane Company, said he had nothing to do with the engine apart from installing it. He had overseen the construction of the plane and had inspected it immediately before Captain Bernard started flying. There had been three previous flights of the plane by Captain Bernard that day, with no complaints or comments afterwards. A gravity petrol gauge had been installed, and the breathing tube had been attended to. A wooden propeller had been put in that day for the first flight. The Daily Certificate of Safety was not signed, as it was an experimental plane. Also, a safety certificate was not required for a single-seater or experimental plane undergoing test flying within a three-mile radius and not carrying passengers for hire or reward. But now, get your walking boots on and your sandwiches packed because we're off on our next instalment for the Bristol to London Big Stroll.
1: The Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol
0: to London Stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London Stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes, fire canals, on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the Big Stroll. today sees us in the village of all cannings and the kennet and avon canal was built across the parish passing just north of the village and was opened in 1810. the parish population peaked in the middle of the 19th century with the 1841 census showing 663 inhabitants in 2015 the first long barrow in thousands of years inspired by those built in the new stone age was built on land just outside the village. The project was instigated by Tim Dorr, a local farmer and a steward at Stonehenge. The barrow was designed to have a large number of private niches within the stone and earth structure to house cremation urns. The structure received significant media attention as it was being built and was fully subscribed within 18 months. The big event in all cannings is the Concert at the Kings, an annual concert which takes place in a field to the rear of the Kings Arms pub. Usually held in May, it is a charitable fundraiser for cancer charities, and to date it has raised over £170,000 for Macmillan Cancer Support, Above and Beyond, and Hope for Tomorrow among many, many other charities. The first concert took place in 2012, and since its inception, acts such as 10cc, The Boomtown Rats, Squeeze, and mid have performed at the King's Arms. 2016 saw Marmalade, Big Country, 10cc, Suzy Quattro, and the SAS Band take to the stage. This year, though, due to Covid, the concert will be taking place on the 4th to the 5th of September, with the likes of Steve Hurley and Cockney Rebel, Lindsay Farn. And Billy Ocean. You can get your tickets at www.concertattheking's.co.uk. For this portion of the walk, we took some friends along with us, Tony and Shui Allen. And here's what they had to say about walking along a canal.
1: So it was brilliant. It was a a very quiet stretch of the canal. We saw very few people. Um, Probably some of that was down to the weather, but uh, generally very quiet. No cyclists today, which was uh, quite nice. And uh, a decent pub halfway along for a pint in their garden, sat high above the river. Yeah, very pleasant.
0: If you are walking from home for a while and if you're looking for like us, looking for a day out, I would definitely recommend this because it's a beautiful scenery and and it's a nice flat walk around the canal and find that pub, it's really nice as well. The pub is called The Bridge Inn, so I would definitely recommend that. Join us next time as our walk through wind and rain takes us to the village of Pusey. And remember... We're doing this massive walk to raise money for Suicide Prevention Bristol in memory of Sarah, a listener and friend. So if you want to show some support and help us get to our target, then head over to www.justgiving.com and type in Backtracker and the page should come up. You'll also be able to read about Sarah who sadly passed away earlier this year. Welcome back everyone! And now, let's continue with our story. Mr Williams then called Albert Thomas Brown of 33 County Street Totterdown, a fitter and foreman in the experimental department of the aeroplane company, who said that he was responsible for the construction of the plane and had been working on it for around 10 weeks, making modifications to the original design. On the Thursday he had prepared the plane for flight. He gave it a thorough examination, especially as it was a special machine and he believed that everything was in correct working order. Captain Bernard had made previous flights and Mr Williams had talked to him in between each flight to discuss any handling issues, but it was nothing to report. He did suggest the moving of the airspeed indicator and revolution indicator for the pilots convenience, which was accepted as a good idea. At the end of the inquest, the coroner said that it was just one of those unhappy and unfortunate things that happens in the world of flying. His job was to find the cause of death and whether there had been any negligence. The cause of death was perfectly clear, dislocation of the neck from the shock of the fall. And, from the evidence presented, it seemed perfectly clear that every precaution had been taken to ensure the safety of Captain Bernard. The only verdict he could give was accidental death. Captain Franklin Leslie Bernard was one of the most famous and skillful of all commercial air pilots at the time and had been flying for over 11 years. He was born on the 2nd of November, 1896, the son of Owen Bernard, a stockbroker's clerk, and Beatrice Pete, and he was married to Ethel Emma Payne since 1920. After flying training, Bernard was appointed flying officer in the Royal Flying Corps and in July 1916, he joined No. 18 Squadron in France. On the 22nd of October 1916, 2nd Lieutenant Bernard was piloting FE.2B from Lavaisville with his observer, Lieutenant F.S. Rankin. Captain Bernard wrote in his combat report,
2: When escorting a camera machine over Bapalm. We attacked one of several hostile aircraft, which were in the neighbourhood of the camera machine. Shortly after, two more appeared above us. When these had been driven off, we turned for home, but found three more on our tail. Rankin put one drum into one, which was passing straight over our heads at very close range, and this machine immediately became out of control, the tail and back of fuselage being on fire. It went down in a spin. The remaining two hostile aircraft were now firing from behind and Rankin stood up to get a shot at them. One more hostile aircraft was seen to go down in a nosedive with smoke from its engine. Rankin was still firing when he was hit in the head and fell sideways over the side of the Nassau. I managed to catch his coat as he was falling and by getting in the front seat pulled him back. I then got back in the pilot's seat. The engine and most controls had been shot, but I managed to get the machine over our lines and landed 200 yards behind our front line.
0: Unfortunately, Rankin died, and Bernard received injuries that made him unfit for service for a further year. Bernard was awarded the AFC, Air Force Cross. In late 1918, he served with No. 24 Squadron RAF, flying VIPs and other personnel on communications flights in UK and France. He flew the channel thousands of times, and after a distinguished war career, he began piloting civil aircraft in 1919, being the first pilot engaged on the Instone Airline. He had been flying commercial aircraft continually since that date, and joined the Imperial Airways on its inception in 1924. He was twice winner of the King's Cup, an annual British handicapped cross-country air race run by the Royal Aero Club Records Racing and Rally Association and open to Commonwealth pilots only. He had high hopes of winning it for the third time that year that he died and he was testing his machine when he met his death, setting off from the Filton Aerodrome. On the 9th of September 1922, he won the first King's Cup race in Airco DH-4A at Croydon Aerodrome, having flown 810 miles over a cross-country course at an average speed of 123.6 miles an hour. The aircraft was in the blue and silver colours of Instone Airline, named City of York. He raced in the DH-4A again in the 1923 King's Cup race, and later used DH-50 in the 1924 race. On the 4th of July 1925, he won the 4th King's Cup race in AW Siskin 5 at Croydon Aerodrome, having flown two laps each of 804 miles at an average speed of 141.7 miles an hour. On the 9th of July 1926, he flew the Bristol 99 badminton in the 1926 5th King's Cup race but had to make a forced landing after a fuel feed problem. He piloted the last of the five new Imperial Airways liners built for the Egypt-India Empire route and he was on that historical occasion accompanied by Mrs. Bernard, his wife. He piloted the machine on the Great Air Tour to India which was taken by Sir Samuel Hoare, Secretary of State for Air, as well as Lady Maud Hoare in the previous December. He was said to have handled that flight with great efficiency, which was evident from the fact that the machine never had a forced landing, a breakdown or a delay. A remarkable testimony to the pilot. On the 3rd of June 1927 he was appointed Officer of the Order of the British Empire or OBE in the King's 1927 birthday honours list. As General Secretary of the British civilian air pilots he was concerned some time ago with a virtual strike of civilian transport pilots following the inauguration of Imperial Airways Limited, and he actively supported the demands of the pilots that they should receive the same pay that they had been receiving prior to formation of that particular company. Franklin Bernard was cremated at Golders Green in London. On 3 August 1927, the funeral was held in the Pearly Congregational Church, not far from his home. The coffin was covered with the Union Jack, and the hearse was described as being a blaze of colours, with all the wreaths surrounding the casket. The Reverend Dr Eads likened Bernard to Wordsworth's happy warrior, saying he had been a man incapable of any act or thought of meanness, and paid tribute to his splendid bravery, His achievements during the war, and to the fact that he was the only man who had won the coveted King's Cup twice. The widow broke down in tears and needed the support of Franklin's parents.
1: in the day facts
0: let's start off with the third of July when, in eighteen eighty six German engineer Karl Benz gave a public demonstration of the first motor car patented earlier that year. He drove around the streets of Mannheim, Germany, reaching a top speed of wait for it ten miles an hour, also on the third of July, but in nineteen seventy one U.S. singer with the Doors and poet Jim Morrison passed away. On the 4th of July in 1968, Alec Rose, British shot and greengrocer, landed in Portsmouth after sailing single-handed around the world in 354 days. On the 5th of July in 1841, Thomas Cook organised a rail excursion for 500 people, the first beginnings of his travel agency. And also on the 5th of July in 1946, the Bikini was launched in Paris. On the 6th of July, 1957, Paul McCartney was introduced to John Lennon and his group, the Quarrymen, had a church fete in Liverpool. And lastly, on the 8th of July in 1777, Vermont was the first US state to abolish slavery in its state constitution. I'd just like to say a huge thank you to the people who really do genuinely make me look good. And this week it's Molly Jeffries from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, Mike Clark from Bradley Stoke Radio, and Griff from the Paul and Griff Show podcast. You have been listening to me, Alice. On the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using backtrackeruk with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.